Hey everybody, this is Bad Audio Michael. I wanted to jump in real quick and let you know that this was supposed to be the final part in our series on Fallout, going over the games as well as their plots, but we ended up recording about three and a half hours worth of podcast. Uh, so we made the decision to split it into two, with this episode covering Fallout 3 and the origins behind Fallout New Vegas, and part three covering New Vegas proper and Fallout 4. Uh, hopefully you all in- will enjoy this extra long look at the series, and uh, with that, on with the show. How are we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex, as always. How's it going? And we're here with another episode of Fallen Through Potholes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. And this is part two of our series on Fallout, where we're going to be covering Fallout 3, New Vegas, and 4, and we'll probably talk about Fallout 76 very, very briefly. Previous episode, of course, we went over the first two games, uh, so you should definitely check that out if you want to get the full story. But with that out of the way, Alex, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Good, 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 good. Yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty good myself. I have uh, I have been very immersed in the Fallout, uh, specifically Fallout Four, uh, given that I just recently looked at my save file for Fallout Four mm. and realized I spent. It gives you, it tells you how many days you've played. <laughs> Ooh, which that yeah. really puts things into perspective. And it's like, oh, you've been playing for four days and ten hours. I'm like. That's, uh, I know what math is. Uh-huh. That's over yep. 100 hours. Yep. And at least 70% of that has been building very bad settlements. Yeah, I mean, it's a Bethesda RPG, so it's a game that you're going to spend many, many hours in doing anything except the primary objective. Primarily oh. just immersing yourself in whatever side mechanic catches your interest, and then probably installing a bunch of mods. Yeah, and that's pretty much what I have been doing, because it's on a save file that does have, like, 80 mods installed. That sounds right. Yeah, it only crashes every, like, 10 minutes or so. It's great. Yeah. But yeah, with that, it means I am very well prepared for today's episode and very excited to talk about it, because we are getting into, some might argue, not only the best of Fallout, but also the very worst. Mm. Whereas, you know, last episode, we dealt with a version of Fallout not only that's not only the beginning of it, but something that's very, very different. An isometric RPG that uh, very much is its own separate thing. Whereas right. today, we're going to be talking about what happens when a company that's known for first-person RPGs uh, that are more swords and sorcery decides to basically modify their game engine to make it shoot guns. Yeah... And how it somehow actually goes well for them, even though maybe it shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but before we jump into this, uh, if I remember correctly, you didn't have a whole lot of familiarity with Fallout 1 and 2, but you've played a, a fair bit of Fallout 3, correct? I have played, I want to say, several dozen hours. I can even check my Steam history right now, hmm. which may or may not be very much Fallout 3 at all. <laughs> It might be something that's Fallout 3 adjacent, essentially. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. Never mind, I did not play Fallout 3 on Steam. <laughs> ah, you know, that works too. <laughs> so so in many ways, you're going to be kind of going into this next, uh, this next part also a little blind, kind of like the first part. Fairly, yes. All right, well then this is exciting because uh, we're going to get into the easily the highs and lows of Fallout storytelling. 
Right. Yes, I have heard that the general consensus is that Fallout 3 is quite good, except mm-hmm. for those who say it's not very good at all. Mm-hmm. And New Vegas is amazing, except when it's terrible. And Fallout 4 is more Fallout 3, but with house building. Yeah, that's, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I might quibble a little bit on the New Vegas part, but that's because it's one of my favorite games of all time, and so Fair. I'm biased. But yeah, that's roughly about uh, the reception, I would say. So yeah, we probably should talk about how we're even going to get to a Fallout 3 in the first place. Because, well, needless to say, the point after Fallout 2 comes out, Interplay's not exactly in good shape. So when we last left off, Interplay and Black Isle Studios had just released Fallout 2, a game considered to be a worthy successor to the previous entry, Fallout, which itself was already considered to be one of the greatest games of all time when it came out. Now, between this success and the release of games such as Earthworm Jim 2, MDK, Baldur's Gate, and Carmageddon, which I totally forgot they published, mm. Interplay seemed to be in quite a good position itself. Like, you, they have yeah. all these hits that they're releasing. Those are all great games. Indeed, they are. And it seems only natural that Black Isle would develop Fallout 3 and continue their own run of success. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Alex, Interplay is a 90s video game company. Ah, uh, unfortunate. <laughs> Indeed. And as we know, 90s game companies aren't exactly the most responsibly ran organizations. No. So, shortly after Fallout 2 comes out in 1998, Interplay just sort of ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, they ended up in bankruptcy court, and now they tried, like, various methods to raise, like, new capital including a successful attempt to get them listed on the NASDAQ stock index. They literally went, we have no money. We need to raise valuation. So let's, uh, let's just get ourselves listed. And somehow NASDAQ was like, yeah, not sure. Okay, cool. And uh, they basically were a very innovative company in that they tried to grift investment capitalists and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, they were well ahead of the time and nobody bought, nobody like bit into this. Right. Nobody gave them any money. So... Mm. Instead, they found a very temporary salvation in the worst way possible. They accepted funding and hitched the fate of their company to another responsibly ran, but this time French company, Titus Interactive. Oh, no. Oh, Alex. Oh, no. It sounds like you've heard of Titus. I, I know that they are the developers of the all-time classic most beloved best game on the N64, Superman, for the Nintendo 64. <laughs> oh my god, definitely yes. didn't put their company in the ground. No, it definitely did not. Yes, Superman 64, a game that uses the license of the Superman animated series. A great cartoon. Uh, for an incredibly bad video game that uh, (laughs) ran so poorly that they included resolution options in there where they would just make the screen tinier and tinier in order to make the game run quicker. Yep. To the point you could actually make the screen like one-eighth the size if you really wanted to, and it would run at like 60 FPS. It was great. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, which is also a really bad sign when you include that feature to make your game actually run in a consistent rate. Yeah. It's also a game that has literally no ending. It's great. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they're the ones responsible for that game, as well as other games such as a Xeno Warrior Princess fighting game that was also for Nintendo 64. And they're a company that's been around since the 80s. Uh, they actually had somewhat decent games that came out for the Super Nintendo in the 90s. Um, yeah. Uh, but 
by the time they got to the Nintendo 64, things were a bit rough. But so it's kind of out of the scope of this podcast to go entirely into the details as far as like what this agreement was. But in short, for $3 million, Titus essentially acquired Interplay. Now, I say essentially because Interplay technically was their own separate company. They just couldn't publish games and didn't own the rights to any of their IPs anymore. Which, great, I guess. (laughs) I guess, yeah, you're not really a game company at that point. Yeah, you're not. You really aren't. So it's like, I, I guess the idea is that if they wanted to develop new intellectual properties, they could. They just couldn't publish them themselves and they would still wholly own them. But yeah, it seems, first off, it seems like a very low amount of money, $3 million. Yeah. Uh, and two, boy, you basically just signed over your entire company. This, I don't see mm-hmm. how this could go well at all. Yeah. For Titus, though, this seemed like a very good deal. And given they're about to get into financial troubles themselves, probably one that they're happy to have done. Because you see, as we kind of already alluded to, Titus wasn't very good at making video games, or making good decisions in general. Games such as Superman 64, the Virtual Chess series, and Jimmy White's Q-Ball World simply didn't set the world on fire. And by 2004, (laughs) they had a 33 million euro debt, or about 43.8 million American dollars. Now, here's the good news, Alex. They have all these IPs from a company they technically don't control that they can sell. And so with what they did is they started more or less breaking off Interplay piecemeal and selling it off. And one of those IPs that ended up getting sold was Fallout. Now, for the Fallout IP, they ended up finding a very willing buyer, one flush with cash after a string of successes on the PC. And this company was Bethesda Softworks. Bethesda known for the Elder Scrolls series, and I think right before this purchase was just off of releasing the Elder Scrolls, uh, I think Elder Scrolls Tales Redguard is what it's called. Mm. Weird Elder Scrolls spinoff game. Yeah. Uh, They ended up buying the Fallout IP for $5.75 million. And immediately, yeah, not not much at all, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, Finally. The the Fallout franchise belongs to a studio with no controversy or shady business deals. None at all. <laughs> Never ever. <laughs> Good old wholesome, trustworthy Zenimax. Oh yes, the most trustworthy of companies. <laughs> uh yes. Yeah, people are not happy that Bethesda has the ownership of the of the Fallout IP. For many reasons, including the fact that their parent company, Zenimax, is, well, in the spotlight. Yeah. So, um, once they acquired this, they immediately announced their intention to release a brand new game in the series. They budgeted at about $75 million and expected it to be released in 2010. This game, called Fallout 3, would actually be released ahead of schedule on October 28th, 2008, to rave reviews and incredible success. Like, a level of success that is kind of... um kind of makes it seem like a steal for how much money they spent on this, because by November Mm -hmm. 2008, one month after the game was released, they'd already made an estimated $300 million in total sales. Damn. Now, admittedly, this is Bethesda reporting this, and American video game companies do not actually have to report how much money they make. They could just... Right. They can massage those numbers as much as they want. It's not like Japanese video game companies where it is actually reported out in their financials. Right. But it seems weird that they would lie about this specific number. And given just how much the game sold and, like, how popular it was, it, it seems very legit, and it seems like a success in every sense of the word for Bethesda. Now, 
just what about what's Interplay doing with all this? Like, how are they feeling about this? Mm-hmm. So this is going to be the exit of Interplay from the story. But basically when they, well, I guess forcibly had the Fallout IP removed from them, they actually did come to an agreement with Bethesda that they would raise $30 million in capital and create a Fallout MMO. Oh, God. Yes. Um, I'm going to just spoil this now. They're not going to raise that $30 million, <laughs> and that uh, online game is never going to come out. And, uh, in fact, they're going to get kind of sued over that later because they're going to still try mm. to make it anyways. Mm, yeah, okay, that tracks. Yeah, that's a story for another time, but I, I figured it'd be... It'd be wrong if we didn't, like, leave some sort of coda for the interplay side of this. Yeah. I feel like you need more than $30 million to make an MMO. Yeah. It seemed like the idea is that they were going to raise $30 million independently, and then Bethesda was going to help out with the rest of it, because they were going to be the ultimate publishers of the game. Right. So it was kind of like, okay, see if you can't find interest in this first. And then they didn't, and they went, well, we're going to try to make this game anyways. And then Bethesda's like, like, the hell you are? No, you're not. Right. Also... At that point, with what money? Like, MMOs are the most expensive game you can make. Yeah, even back then. Yeah, I'm not really sure how that was going to work out, but they tried. But this will dethrone World of Warcraft for sure. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Well, at least be, like, third place behind EverQuest. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, Bethesda had a huge success with Fallout 3. It was critically well-received, and it brought in a lot of new people to the franchise. Now, not everyone was happy with Fallout 3. And by everyone, I mean people who were fans of Fallout were not happy with Fallout 3. (laughs) And for this, I turned to the largest Fallout fan site out there, No Mutants Allowed. Uh, Alex, are you familiar with this website at all? I think I've heard of it, but I've never paid too much attention to it. You probably have, because they raised a hell of a stink once uh, once this game came out. They were uh, just especially hostile to the game. And they've, they've been kind of, like, notorious in the Fallout community even before this. Like, when Fallout Taxes mm-hmm. came out, there were, like, multiple references to No Mutants Allowed. And uh, by references, I mean not flattering references. Right. To the um, to their forums and some people on them that tended to have, uh, let's say, opinions. <laughs> And so multiple prominent members of the site stated they were going to boycott the game, and like they had multiple stories about how this game's going to just be absolute terribleness, trash, multiple interminably long posts on their forum about the way they failed the Fallout franchise. Mm-hmm. And like this is to say that there wasn't like any valid criticism of the game, which we'll get right. to in a second, but boy, were they picky about things. Right. Uh, in fact, I'm just going to open this up, this uh, archive thread where they, like, this one person, first off, they cited this thing. There are 10 sources to this <laughs> incredibly long forum post, which, oh, no, I'm sorry. I under I undercut that a little bit. 44 references. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And it's pulling apart, like, everything. And, like, some of it's, like, kind of legitimate. Mm-hmm. But, like, some other things are, like, them talking about, like, oh, man, they really dumbed down the Elder Scrolls series when he went from Morrowind, the third game in the series, to Oblivion. Like, they right. made it more friendly to fans. It's like, that's not what you do with video games. It's like, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess, like, I, as somebody who, like, really loves, like, Morrowind and how complex it is, I could right. never recommend that game to anybody because it's so <laughs> obtuse. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a game where if you kill the wrong person, you literally end up in an unwinnable state. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's it's one of these things where like you'll always have these hardcore fans who are like, don't make it easier or friendlier. Mm. And it's like I can I can definitely understand that sentiment, but at the same time, like I don't know, man. That's how you end up with Pathfinder. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Or there's like one where like Todd Howard, the executive producer for the game, uh, was like, yeah, no, like pretty much everyone on the staff has like played Fallout in some capacity. You know, we're all fans of the game. And then they like picked apart somebody who said, yeah, like a developer who joined the Bethesda team was like, yeah, I need to really get to Fallout 2 sometime. I heard it's really good. And like, no, they haven't played all the Fallout games. It's like, that's not what they said. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just, it's amazing. I'll, I'm maybe, I'll probably end up linking it in the show notes because right. it's, a, it's a fun thread to go through. Um, just to see good mid two thousands internet discourse. Ah, uh, yes, what a time! What a time! But yeah, I think with that though, we should talk about the setting and plot of Fallout Three. So, for background, I love the setting of Fallout Three an awful lot. I like the basic ideas of the plot of Fallout Three. I don't think it comes together very well, which. Granted, that is a Bethesda game at its yep, core. Yep, that, that's par for the course with Bethesda. Mm-hmm. Intriguing setting, really cool mechanics, and then it's like, oh, here's the writing, huh? Yep. So hey, let's, let's look at Skyrim real briefly. Hey, the dragons from the past are going to create an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I don't care. <laughs> like That's like the most metal concept I can think of, and I don't care. Yep. <laughs> because this world has no cohesion and no immersion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll just go level alchemy for a hundred hours. Yeah, I, I guess it, maybe it's important to kind of talk about the structure of a Bethesda game because how Bethesda does a game and how Black Isle did a game is vastly different. Yeah. Um, the Elder Scrolls, this game is essentially an offshoot of the Elder Scrolls series. In many ways, an Elder Scrolls series' big thing is that they are first-person RPGs, usually laden with mechanics in an incredibly giant kind of clockwork open world, mm-hmm. um, where you're usually just let out into the world and told to do whatever. You're usually given a quest line to follow, and that will lead you down like the critical path, but the game will be more than happy to let you just take a left turn and do exactly what Alex said. It's like, oh man, there's like this whole alchemy thing I could do. Maybe I'll just mess with that for 60 hours. Or like, oh man, there's this like guild I can join and just do all their quests because there's a bunch of quests that are just evolved like off to this random side. Or there's these towns that aren't part of the main quest, but they're in the game and I can go hang out there. Right. It's a really cool thing that these games have, this very open feeling and this ability to do whatever you want. But for having like a critical through line, it kind of ends up hurting the game overall. Yeah. It also doesn't help that almost invariably there are like these side quests and quests just out in the world that are better written and more interesting by far than the main quest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Like the Dark Brotherhood quest in uh, Skyrim and Oblivion are very well regarded compared to the actual storylines going on in those games yeah so like the main quest is almost never anyone's favorite quest in the game yeah it isn't and and the 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 sheer amount of freedom that you have means that any attempt to make things feel time sensitive or urgent in the storyline 
ends up falling apart because it's like, okay, well, you need to go and close this Oblivion Gate now. Right. Or else the evil monsters are going to pour through and destroy the world. And it's like, what if yeah. I just went to this town over here and talked to this cat man who's high on drugs and do his quest line for like five hours? That, that cool? You cool with that? All right, I'm going to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Oh, hey, I'm a vampire now. That's yeah. weird. Oh, what do you know? This is entire vampire quest line. Well, have fun with those demons, people of Kavach. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of like their structure of their games. And this extends to Fallout 3. And so what this leads to is, um, once again, a, a place that's like very, has a very, very interesting setting, but it's very easy to ignore or accidentally stumble upon parts of the main plots. Yeah. As I did when I played it. So... To set up exactly what's going on in Fallout 3, this game takes place 200 years after the bombs fall. So in the year 2020, uh, 2277, there we go, uh, on the 200, on the 300th, 400th, I'm trying to do math in my head, Alex, I think it's the 400th <laughs> anniversary of the, Uni- of the founding of the United States of America. Oh, that's right. It is. Yeah. Almost like 500 years after the founding of the United States. Yeah, okay. You know you know what's really sad? What? I can't remember if I ever knew this and just remembered it or if I actually just figured it out, but I just realized Fallout 76 is a reference to the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Sucks, wow. doesn't it? <laughs> wow, incredible. Such poetry. Such poetry. Oh, God, Fallout 76. <laughs> so, yeah, the game takes place in 2277, and in... Unlike the previous games, which took place in California and kind of followed the rise of the new California Republic and all the vaults mm-hmm. that are out there, right. this game instead takes place on the East Coast in the Washington, D.C. area. So city of Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. Um, and this was done very deliberately to kind of create a clean break from the old games. Bethesda kind of wanted to do their own thing with this and allow themselves to kind of explore this space and also reintroduce elements from the previous game without it feeling like it's completely recycled. Now, unfortunately, because of that, they end up more or less making this game out as kind of like the best hits of Fallout 1 and 2. Right. Like, for instance, the central theme of this game is clean water. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Which, Fallout 1, you're trying to find the water chip. Uh, The Enclave is involved. Fallout 2 had the Enclave. Right. Uh, super mutants play a big part. Mm-hmm. Super mutants were a big thing in the first game. It literally is like a greatest hits of the of the first right. two games. Which I can understand. You know, the series has been dormant for a long time. You're reviving it. You're bringing it back to the fans. You want the fans to see the things that they like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It totally makes sense. Uh, another thing that also makes sense is why they did this is that by the time Fallout 2 happens, you know, there's now already this established... Uh, country that's now there the new california mm-hmm. republic civilization is rebuilding and if you want set to set something in post-apocalyptic and have it really feel like it right or at least in a way that i think people want to visualize it which is right after the bombs fall right you have to move it somewhere else and give a conceit as to why things are still messed up right so for the cap what's called the capital wasteland it's basically in a state that's very similar to either right after the bombs fell or like at least like where Fallout One was, where it's more very, it's more tribal and whatnot. Right. Um, the the conceit behind it is because since it's Washington D.C., the nerve center of the United States, it got nuked really hard. Makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, so civilization just simply has not been able to rebuild the same way that mm -hmm. the West Coast was. It's far more irradiated. Things are just so much worse and whatnot. Unfortunately, this kind of doesn't work in a way. And this is actually a criticism yeah. that No Mutants Allowed brings up that I, I agree with, is that in order to establish this, they still show things like they would be if the bombs had literally just fallen. There's a lot of wooden houses that are around. Mm, yeah. <laughs> which... Wood, if it's well-preserved, can last literally th like thousands of years. Right. Um, obviously, out in the elements, it's, that's not going to happen. And, like, the original Fallout game did have, like, some ruins and whatnot, but they're usually, like, brick buildings and whatnot. Right. Here, though, it literally looks like the bombs literally just fell yesterday. Yeah. Now, when I first played this game, I didn't really notice it too much, so I don't think it's a huge criticism, but it's definitely something that once it was pointed out to me, I was like, ah, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of immersion-breaking. Like, mm -hmm. it definitely, having played it, it definitely does not feel like the bombs fell, what, 200 years ago? Yeah. It it definitely feels like 30, at mm. most, or something. Yeah, totally, totally. It feels very recent. It, it, it really reinforces the idea that they sort of were remaking Fallout 1, and they wanted right. that similar time frame, but they also didn't want to trample on the old, right. the old stuff, so they're like, well, why don't we just... It got nuked hard. It got nuked hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, also, it should be pointed out that Bethesda is headquartered in Maryland. Yes, so, they are. You uh, can even visit the ruins of their building, yes. <laughs> ah, okay. So, yeah, If uh, while we're talking about reasons that things have been moved to the East Coast, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, you write what you know, and if you live in the area, that's what you do. It's kind of like with Interplay and Black Isle. They were based right, in California, yeah. so it yeah. sort of makes sense why things were like that there. Yeah, so that's the bad things about it. The good things, I do think the Capital Wasteland, though, is a well-realized space. Yeah, I agree. I really love that open world. Um, I love I loved being able to walk around Washington, D.C. And, like, there's a lot of criticism about a lot of it being sectioned off with loading zones. You have, you have to go into, like, a metro tunnel, and then you mm -hmm. merge out to a random place. It's really confusing and hard to navigate. But I love that. Mm. I loved, like, randomly running into Arlington Cemetery, for instance. Or, you know, DuPont Circle and, like, all these other places. Like, like you don't have to actually go and find the White House, but you totally can. Mm -hmm. uh, it's stuff, like, stuff like that that I found really, really interesting, and I felt it was really well done. It was a yeah. world that I was very happy to just walk around in. It's also a world that feels incredibly sparse. Yeah. There's, like, only, I think, two or three major, like, settlements in the entire game. And all the other smaller settlements that are around are, like, there's just, like, two people just hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> Which, once again, it, it kind of reinforces that, like, yeah, no, it's kind of hard to, like, form anything big around here. Right. But it, it does make the world feel a little bit empty. Right, yeah. But that's sort of the setup that we have for when we start our game. And our game starts off in a way that I don't like. <laughs> it is awkward. <laughs> But also very, very funny. So the game starts with you literally being born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And little baby you is greeted by your dad, played by Liam Neeson, because this was around the time that Bethesda was really big about getting big name actors into their games. Right. For about five lines before the unceremoniously <laughs> die, I guess, spoiler alert. Yeah. And so Liam Neeson, who plays your father, uh, basically talks to you determines what your gender is and whatnot, is talking to his wife. And then literally, a machine comes down, and your dad says, hey, it's going to tell you what you look like in the future. 
Why don't you customize your appearance right now? Yeah. <laughs> it's really awkward. It doesn't it doesn't work super great. No, it doesn't. So after that, your mom then immediately goes into hemorrhagic shock and dies. <laughs> yeah. So that happens. And then <laughs> literally it fast forward. It literally says, I think something like 10 years later. And you find yourself in a completely different space now. You're now in a vault. Vault 101. Vault 101 is a special vault. It is a vault that was designed to be closed and never open. Their motto literally is... Born in a vault, die in a vault. Why? The reason being is because the world is messed up and it will never get better. So you better live here. <laughs> uh, so you're on this day, you're celebrating your birthday. And on this day is the day that you're finally given a task in the vault. And you're also given it. Well, you start giving tasks in the vault. You're like basically given chores. And you're also given your first Pip-Boy your little computer that every character in the Fallout series has. So, you know, you see all this, you know, you get to see your cake get cut, you know, all the kids mm. make fun of you, whatnot. It's great. Um, <laughs> your dad takes you downstairs to, to hang out with his, like, lab assistant, Jonas. You find out your dad's a medical doctor there, and you get your first BB gun, and this is where you're taught how to shoot and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you get your picture taken, and it's like, fast forward, now it's, you're 16, and you have to go take the goat. <laughs> Which is basically an aptitude test to determine what you're going to be. And so, you know, you go do that. You, f you get told what you're going to be and whatnot. You get introduced to punching people. It's fun. And then all of a sudden, it fast forwards. And now you're age 19. And all of a sudden, the alarms are going off. And you're not sure what's going on. And you find out that your dad has escaped the vault. For some reason, he's like basically sabotaged it as well to let in a bunch of rad roaches. Basically giant mutated roaches. Right. And... In the entire confusion, like, some of the younger people are trying to escape and leave the vault because they just want to get out, you know, rebel against the man, that sort of thing. And during this time, the overseer is incredibly angry with you. Uh, thankfully, your best friend is the overseer's daughter. Her name's Amada, and she helps you escape and whatnot. So security, like, tries to gun you down and whatnot, but you manage to get out. Um, and, like, when you get to, like, the vault exit, like, the guards stop chasing you because, like, oh, man, we're not going to go out there. If we go out there, we'll die. It's too irradiated. <laughs> But you, of course, wanting to search for your father, end up leaving. And from then on, you become known as the Lone Wanderer. And leaving the vault, you see the vastness of the capital wasteland. The, the skies are green. There are no trees. Well, there are, but they're, they're not growing anything. And more importantly, every source of water is incredibly irradiated. Like, hilariously irradiated. Yeah. Like, oh, don't touch that. You will just immediately start glowing. Pretty much. So with that, you set out to go find your dad and figure out why the, why the hell this all happened. Because, like, during your escape, you also find out from the overseer himself that he should never have let your father in in the first place. So already it's like, okay, so people have been coming and going from this vault before, haven't they? So, like, there's a mystery that's now afoot. Right. So... As the soul, the soul survivor, that is, that's the next game. The Lone Wanderer, you <laughs> end up uh, basically going to various towns and whatnot, kind of trying to uncover what's going on. Like, one of the first towns you go to is this place called Megaton, which is like a scrap mm -hmm. city, literally built around a fallen nuclear nuclear bomb that didn't explode. Oh, that's great. It's, yeah. Why would you build a town there? I have zero clue. They just went, 
I don't know. This seems like a good place to do this. <laughs> What's great is he talked about, I was like, yeah, man, this bomb could go off at any time. Wish somebody would disarm it. And that's like literally one of the first things you can do. Uh-huh. You can also be convinced by somebody to like just nuke it for literally no reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, Dude's literally like, I want to see it blow up. It'll be funny. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And it's like, all right, well, I guess we could do that. Is that this is actually like your first like introduction to the karma system like karma mm-hmm. exists in the previous fallout games but here it's it's a mid-2000s you know sort of morality yeah. system where it's like you're either jesus or not yeah but this game is very hilarious about it because if you're either very good or very bad people will try to murder you <laughs> now it's funny if you're like you're if you're very evil there's this group called the regulators who will try to hunt you down because you're evil and murdering people makes sense right if you're just like into giving people water for some reason, people want to murder you for that as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, it can't be too nice in the wasteland. Exactly. It, so, like, it means that the optimal way to play, oddly enough, is to give a person water and then murder two other people. <laughs> that way you keep your karma neutral. It also leads It's to this weird funny, that that balances out. It, it is. It, it's actually, it's really hilarious. It's really it, kind of messed up. Like, it literally is, like, I think one dead body is equal to giving water to a thirsty man. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, you learn from uh, this, like, very stereotypically Irish bartender in Megaton that your dad was, yeah, definitely not from the vault. And mm-hmm. he's gone off to this city, place called Rivet City, which it happens to be in the ruins of, of DC. So, you go there... You go into DC and whatnot, and along the way, you end up at this place called Galaxy News Radio, which is a working radio station. Um, this is actually another criticism that No More Mutants had, is that a lot of technology in this world just inexplicably works. Oh, yeah. Such as old generators, radio stations, and computers. So, like, but, like, you end up, like, getting to this um this radio station run by this man called Three Dog. <laughs> who's rad. I love Three Dog. Yeah. I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't take that much issue with that. Like, yeah, maybe it's not realistic, but Fallout has always been this sort of, like, dark humor, anachronistic, hmm. like, you know, the the fun of it is, like, a combination of 50s tech and post-apocalyptic destruction. Yeah. So, like, you, you gotta sort of have a balance between those two. It can't just all be, oh, the world is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing exactly. works and everyone's gone to hell. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I yeah, I, I definitely don't mind the fact that oh, you can hack a computer, right? Like, I I think there are things to argue of like of like a lot of people are definitely are leaving their entire life stories in computers, but that's also just how kind of how games did exposition back right. then. Yeah. Um, and and some of it's like actually like really well done. Others it's like this random raiders like I'm just gonna give my entire life story and all my motivations <laughs> here in this incredibly old computer. It's like. First off, how did you learn the right? There's no education here. And two, right. But yeah, so you get to um, Galaxy News Radio, and the, you learn a couple things. One, the DC ruins are overrun by super mutants. It turns out super mutants are everywhere and are also shockingly easy to kill. Yeah. And two, our good old friends, the Brotherhood of Steel, happen to be here. <laughs> In fact, you meet up with the head of one of their elite units uh, called Lion's Pride. Led by a one Sarah Lyons, who's roughly about your age or so. 
Uh, they, you end up helping her fight off like a super mutant behemoth, basically a super mutant, but bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you do that, she's like, man, you seem pretty rad. You should come find us, uh, you know, after you get all this done and whatnot, you know, finding your dad. Probably be a pretty good member of the Brotherhood of Steel. We'll get into like their whole deal in a bit because they're going to be incredibly relevant to the plot. Uh, but for now, you end up meeting up with Three Dog. He reinforces the fact that your dad's at Rivet City. Um, you may or may not have to do a quest for him. You can kind of convince him that, hey, you should just help me find my dad. Right. Or he could be like, nah, you should help me make sure my radio station reaches all throughout the Capital Wasteland. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go fight these super mutants. Um, <laughs> well, let's say you just convince him and you end up going to Rivet City. So Rivet City, the other major... Um, the other major settlement in the Capital Wasteland is a settlement that's built out of a beached aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably my favorite, one of my favorite locations in the game. And it's really cool. It is unfortunately also the place I stopped playing. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I explicitly remember like the look of Rivet City, but I think the problem was at this point, like, the way Bethesda set up settlements in this game is so kind of monotonous mm-hmm. that, like, I just couldn't find the energy to care about Rivet City on top of the other ones. Yeah. Like, I was like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. There's there's people, and there's the wasteland, and the people live in the wasteland, and they have wasteland problems. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I can't, I can't blame you on that, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, the, the people inside Rivet City are kind of bland, honestly. Yeah. With one very notable exception. And um, you uh, you learn about that notable exception when you go in there. You end up talking with a... Per- you find out that there's a team of scientists there that are trying to work on, first off, growing better crops so people can actually eat in mm. Capital Wasteland, and are also familiar with your father, whose name is James, by the way. Uh, shows how much of a kind of nothing character he is. Yeah. <laughs> So you, but you do meet a character who is shockingly important in the Fallout series, a one Dr. Madison Lee. Good old Dr. Lee is an asshole. (laughs) She's a close friend of James, however, and her big thing is that she recognizes who you are, and she's like, oh, wow, you, I don't know why you followed your dad out of the vault. He told you to stay there. And so you explain, like, what happened. She's like, oh, he literally told you nothing, huh? Okay, anyways, <laughs> your dad came back here. He wanted us to restart this old project called Project Purity. I told him there's no chance it's going to work. And then he left in the huff to go find something called a Gek. So mm. you sh- he went to uh, this one vault uh, that's out in the wasteland. You should probably go find it if you want to find your dad, because he probably went in that direction. And so you go, oh, huh, all right, then. Have no idea what a Gek is, but whatever. So you end up heading out into the waste. You end up wandering into this vault. I do want to say, actually, that's kind of cool Hmm. that as a vault that was designed to never be opened, 101 didn't talk about or maybe even didn't have their Gek. Yeah. Yeah. They straight up were like, well, you don't need one. So whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's... um... It's a thing where some vaults have geks and some didn't because, yeah, depending on what they planned on doing with them. Right. Like, if this you might one not is, need this. Yeah. Or if you're just a crazy experiment where we're just going to make a same clone of of one person and just <laughs> populate the entire vault of it, you're not expected to leave. <laughs> right. If In this fact, is it's the, better if you don't. If this is the vault that we're just going to just constantly pump drugs into the air, <laughs> you don't need a gek. <laughs> 
So yeah, you end up coming to this vault and you find that, first off, in this vault, everybody is just hanging out in these pods. And you're like, hmm. oh, that's kind of strange. And then there's these creatures called robo brains, which are literally just ro- like little like robots with treads that have like brains in them. Ah. Uh, usually uh, brains of convicts, by the way. That's, that's okay, the sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they they recognize you like, oh, hey, you must be a vault dweller. You must be here to um, be interned in the vault because the bombs dropped. Isn't that great? Uh, you're about 200 years late, but no worries. Put on <laughs> this jumpsuit and get in your pod. And so, like, you look around the pods and you see you're like your dad's in one of them, but you can't open it. And so you're like, oh, okay, well, I'll go ahead and get in this pod. Why would you get in the pod? Because, eh, you know, the robot told you to get into the pod and your dad's that in the pod. That seems like so you much. wouldn't be able to get out of the pod again. It oh, seems like they won't let you out of the pod. Oh, I'm sure there's nothing in the pod that's going to prevent me from getting out of the pod. Oh, wait, <laughs> I just got transported to, like, this weird 50s TV show that's in black and white. This weird idealized version of America that where this little girl is telling me to murder all the citizens. Huh. Yeah, okay, this, this seems like the Matrix, which is exactly what it seemed like to begin with. Yep. When everyone was in pods, sleeping forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it turns out this Run by vault, robot. Wait, this is just actually the Matrix. It is. Well, it's not run by robots. It's actually run by the the uh, creator of all the vault of the uh, Gek and basically the architect behind all the vaults, Stanislav Braun. Oh. Yeah, it turns out that he had this vault built personally because he's like, when the bombs fall, we're pro- I'm old and it's unlikely I'll be able to leave the vault in time to you know, help repopulate the world and whatnot. Uh-huh. So what if I made a vault where there's these bunch of pods, all these people are going to be in these pods, somehow live forever, and um, basically I can just spend the entire time controlling all the different simulations going on in it. This led what? to him eventually kind of getting bored and being like, I'm going to set up weird, elaborate torture scenarios. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, one's going to be like the Titanic and everyone drowns, or this one where it's like, this is idealized America life, but in... Weird things are going to happen to them secretly, and horrible things will happen. And so when you arrive there, he's like, huh, wow, another uh, wastelander wandered in. Isn't that rad? Oh, you want to find your dad? Help me torture these random people, and I'll let you see your dad. So you can do that if you want, or you could also literally activate a program that is like a failsafe that causes like a simulation of the Chinese army to invade and kill everybody, which somehow also kills everybody in the pods. Don't know how. I, I, okay, I have a number of questions about this scenario. Sure, hit me. Uh, okay, why does he need you to help him torture everyone? Oh, he's gonna find it amusing. Okay. He's, he's bored of doing the torturing himself. He wants to see somebody else do it. Why, why couldn't he have anyone else do it? Well, because he's, you know, he doesn't want the other people to know they're in a simulation. Wouldn't? Okay, this ties into another question of somewhat. First of all, why is there a failsafe routine? To well, kill everyone. I guess the idea being that if things were to go horrifically wrong and you just need to punch out, that's uh, that's just something you could do. Well, okay. Um, didn't every other routine kill everyone? You see, that's the part that messes with me. Because <laughs> these people all constantly are being killed and revived. Right. Why does yeah. this one actually kill everyone? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's... Real, maybe it's like if you're, he's looking away it's like I have no mouth and must scream sort of thing where it's like right. okay if the overlord's looking away I can kill these people and you can't be revived I don't know 
Yeah, also, he, why does he need to kill everyone to punch out? Oh, here's the thing. If everyone dies, he can't punch out. He's locked himself in. Wait, why? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the fun thing is that you, the car, the good karma thing is that you, over, you activate the fail safe. Everyone dies and goes, oh, great. I'm going to be trapped here forever. Oh, by the way, here's your dad. Like, he's actually kind of blasé about it. Okay. <laughs> about being alone forever. <laughs> I feel like he could have just made the simulation for himself. And I don't, I don't understand this. I, I don't understand either. this plan. It seemed like they had a, an idea for a cool situation, but they didn't really think about the logistics. Which, right. Yeah, you know. Or the motivations. Yeah. To, to it, be fair, I think a lot of people didn't either, because this is, like, a lot of our viewers pointed this out as being a really cool thing that happens. Right. So, yeah. So the point is, something happens, and you manage to free your dad. And your dad's like, wow, I told you not to leave the vault. What the hell? <laughs> And you're like, what do you mean? You just ran off. You didn't tell me anything. He's like, what's going on? He's like, okay, listen, I can't explain here. I got the information that I needed, though. I know where Gek is. I need to go talk, go back to Madison Lee and talk to her and convince her and her team to help me restart Project Purity. And I want you to come with me, and I'm going to tell you everything. So you're like, all right, cool, Dad. Why not? And so you go back, and he convinces Dr. Lee. He's like, hey, listen, I found a Gek. We can make this happen. And she's like, God damn it. Okay, fine. I'm in. And this is when we finally learn what the hell Project Purity is. So this is one thing I really, really like about this game, mm-hmm. is that from the very beginning, and I mentioned this in a previous podcast, where like every piece of water is completely radioactive. There are people who are constantly dehydrated, constantly without water. Right. And like giving water to somebody is like this huge good karma act. Project Purity's whole idea is to use the Jefferson Memorial as more or less a giant filtration system. Like, literally, a giant filter is built around the statue of Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And by using that in the DC Tidal Basin, they will filter all the water and create so much clean water that people will actually be able to farm effectively, actually have water to survive on a day-to-day basis, and not make this such a commodified thing. Make it so that people can actually you know, rebuild society. It's the one part of this story that I really, really like. I think it's well told in, this, in both um, the character's motivation as well as just the entire, um, the entire setting helps reinforce how important clean water is. Right. So you learn about all this. You learn about your, um, your mom's favorite Bible verse, uh, which is, I think it was, was it Revelations 3.16 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You um, end up going to the Jefferson Memorial. You clean it out of super mutants and whatnot, and you get restarted on Project Purity. It's really great. And you're like, you're like oh, man, you're not going to have to shoot anybody anymore. It's going to be great. You can just help me out and flip switches and all that not. It'll be fun. And so you, you kind of do that for about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you're in like a pipe fixing something up. When you see a bunch of vertebrates land, you know, those little weird helicopters oh, that right. they have, that the Enclave have. Because guess who's here? The it's the enclave. enclave. Didn't we blow them up like a hundred years ago? Nah, it's a different enclave. Oh. I mean, it's the same enclave, but it's a different enclave. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I remember what last podcast episode when I said Fallout copies Wasteland is not going to be the first time Fallout copies its own homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're now yeah. in the Fallout 2 part. <laughs> so, okay. So yeah, you see all of this and you're like, huh, seems bad. Especially when you exit the pipe and all these people clad in Enclave power armors immediately try to murder you. 
And you, being a person who's definitely not in power armor, but essentially, I guess, the Gordon Freeman of this universe, uh-huh. uh, you're able to murder these people with no problem. Okay, sure. Yeah, Fallout's actually really bad about ha- establishing heavily armored targets or super mutants as actually being a threat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, given that Fallout 1 was like, oh yeah, we built these to tank on entire battalions of tanks. Yeah, and they're like, well, you, okay, weirdo with the 10 millimeter pistols, sure, you got this. Also, I feel like, so going back to, oh, they're super mutants, but eh, Mm -hmm. I feel like this would have been a better place. I feel like this should have been the place to introduce the super mutants. Oh, yeah. And like early on, like have super mutants be like a new thing that's just like a a major mutant or something, just like uh, something specific to the Capital Wasteland that's like dangerous, but you're a tough guy, you can deal with it. Hmm. And then the Enclave shows up and they're like, oh yeah, we brought super mutants. Frickin' deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out we've been behind this. Yeah, like, try to tie them together instead of just being like, yeah, super mutants are a problem and they're everywhere. Yeah, it's like, no, they're they're not, though. Yeah, and it's, this is, an, this is like where, like, I feel like the part with the water is really well told through, like, mm-hmm. the environmental storytelling. The super mutants are definitely not. Because the yeah. Brotherhood of Steel are straight up like, we are losing this war against the super mutants. They're all <laughs> over DC. We're barely fighting them off. And then you show up here with, like, a wimpy hunting rifle, and you're just, like, murdering them by the dozens. You're like, don't really seem like a big deal, personally. Seems like y'all just kind of suck. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, that would have been a good way to do that. And then you can save the power armor for, like, I don't know, a boss fight or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But sadly, that did not happen. And after you fight through all these Enclave soldiers, you end up back in the, the main control room for Project Purity around the Jefferson, uh, Jefferson statue in the rotunda. Mm-hmm. And you see the doors are locked. You and Madison Lee are on one side. Your dad and this new man by the name of Colonel Autumn, who speaks with... I guess it's a southern accent. I'm not <laughs> sure what the hell it is. It is it is an attempt at a southern accent. Let's call uh, it that. Mm. Like a very gentlemanly sort of. Right. Julep. Uh, he's talking about, like, hey, listen, we're the rifle hairs of the United States of America. We're here to commandeer this project. We think it's very important. And uh, your dad's like, hey, uh, I mean, that, that's cool and all, but uh, this project doesn't work. So you're, you know, we haven't even gotten this running at all. So you don't have to worry about this. Definitely not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so Colonel Autumn doesn't buy this. He's like, well, we still want control of this. We want you to start this up, and we want you to give us all of the files on it. And once again, your dad's like, no, it doesn't work. It, nothing is going to happen with this. So Colonel Autumn's like, all right, cool, understand. Murders a scientist. Anyways, would you like to start this? And so, uh, Jane, go ahead. No, it's, uh, let's, let's continue. All right. So James is like, okay, I'll go ahead and get it started. And by starting it, I mean he sabotages the machine, introduces, let's say, all the radiation into the chamber where he's at, uh, mm-hmm. killing himself, Colonel Autumn, um, not before, you know, heartfelt saying, run, and then dying dramatically. Right. It's also at this point you could do a very easy glitch where you kind of swivel the camera around and then steal your dad's clothes uh, oh. if you want to. Okay, makes sense. It's a, yeah, it's a special name jumpsuit. It actually has pretty good stats on it. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, no, Dad, you're dead. I'm stealing your clothes. <laughs> They're good. Yep. Um, you can also do the same to Colonel Autumn, oddly enough. But huh. So 
So that happens, You're, and like you and Dr. Lee are like, oh shit, yeah, let's get out of here. So you exit through these secret tunnels, and like Dr. Lee is freaking out. She's like, hey, you're the only one here who knows how to fight. You have to come with us. We need to go to the Brotherhood of Steel. They're the only ones who can help us. And you're like, all right, I guess. Cool, let's do this. Fight through waves of Enclave soldiers. Because mm -hmm. you're literally Captain America at this point. Yeah, sure, why not? And you Got this new jumpsuit. Pretty much. You emerge out of, um, so you emerge out of the tunnels and whatnot, literally in front of the Pentagon, where it turns out the cap, where the uh, DC version of the Brotherhood of Steel have just kind of set up camp. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so at first they don't want to let you in, but then after Mass Lee, like, yells, hey, uh, Lions, open the door up, like, they open up and we end up meeting the leader of the Brotherhood Steel, Elder Lions, the father of Sarah Lions. And a man who looks like the oldest person to ever live. <laughs> he is like a man with like a balding head, a very long white beard, and so many wrinkles. <laughs> Barely holding it together. So this Brotherhood of Steel, first off, plays an incredibly prominent role, even more so than the Brotherhood of Steel played in Fallout 1 and 2. They are an offshoot of the West Coast Brotherhood. Basically, they sent Elder Lions and a team out to DC to recover a bunch of pre-war artifacts that are out there because they're like, well, DC obviously is going to have a lot of things out here that we're going to want. And two, Elder Lions is a very opinionated and idealistic man, and the Brotherhood just kind of wanted him out of his hair. <laughs> he was kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, why don't you just go here? <laughs> So he ends up uh, arriving there, and the first thing they find is like, yeah, there's a bunch of power armor here and a bunch of other stuff. Cool. Also, there are a ton of super mutants, and everybody is dying of radiation. So we got to do everything we possibly can to help. So they become a much more altruistic organization. Like, they are, well, almost unabashedly the good guys of this game. Mm. Now, I say almost because they still hate super mutants, and they still hate ghouls. <laughs> Okay. Our mutated human friends who are, you know, otherwise fine. Right. They still will be shot on sight. Um, something that's actually demonstrated because there's like one of the other, one of the three settlements in the game is like this like underground settlement that uh, is full of ghouls. Right. Happens to be right next to like a brotherhood outpost. And there's like this NPC who walks around and will often get murdered because they're just, the brotherhood are naturally aligned against ghouls. Right. That, <laughs> that seems like an oversight on someone's part. It is, but it it's also like, oh, yeah, no, it does kind of demonstrate you guys are kind of dicks against ghouls, aren't you? Right. Well, so that goes back to, again, I know in Fallout 3, it's established that ghouls, the disease ghouls have is kind of like rabies, in that mm. at a certain point, it'll just hit their brain and turn them feral. Yeah, it's something like that. It's something like you just live so long that eventually, yeah, your brain go bad. Right. So I, I can understand the reasoning of, like, well, this will become a problem at some point, so better to just deal with it now. It's mm. still a dick move, yeah. but, like, I can understand it. But Super Mutants also, it seems like they're just sort of monsters in this game. Mm -hmm. And they're just sort of killing everyone. So, yeah, fair. Yeah, fair. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that they still end up being more good than bad. Right. But it's like, oh, okay, you, you kept a little bit of that, at least. Yeah. So yeah, um, 
Lines, yeah, once again, this Brotherhood is very altruistic. Um, it did cause a bit of a schism within them. There's like a separate group that's kind of wandering the wasteland that's more traditional Brotherhood called the Outcast. Mm. Uh, but they're still the biggest like police force that's out there. So Dr. Lee basically gives a lowdown. It's like, hey, listen, this real bad shit is happening. We found a Gek. We got Project Purity working. Um, well, we haven't gotten the Gek yet, but we, we know where one, we think we know where one is. And you need to help us. The Enclave is here. They're trying to murder everybody. And of course, you know, being the Brotherhood, they recognize who the Enclave is and like, oh yeah, that's bad news. We're going to help you with this. Right. So they give you an idea of a vault that would have a Gek in it and send you on your way to go find it. So you end up going to um, this vault, uh, but before that, you end up coming across one of the other major settlements, a place called Little Lamplight, which is a place that is basically run by children. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. Literally, it's basically children from ages, uh, well, born to 16. <laughs> <laughs> and basically on your 16th birthday, you're cast out. You're called a mungo and you're told to leave. Mm -hmm. After talking to the incredibly foul-mouthed Mayor McCready, um, who's like this 11-year-old. Uh-huh. Uh, and, like, you convince him, like, hey, no, I need to get through here. I need to get to this vault. He's like, okay, yeah, if you kill all the super mutants that are just kind of pouring out of there for no reason, <laughs> we're cool. Fine. You go through there. You kill a bunch of super mutants. You run into, actually, a friendly super mutant by the name of Fox who helps you out and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And you also learn this is where all the super mutants are coming from. It turns out there's a bunch of FEV vats here. Okay, sure. Yeah, why not? This is, yeah, this is where they've been dragged to. And okay. this is where they're getting more super mutants. Sure. Also, where there's a Gek. Unfortunately, this Gek is in a highly irradiated part of the vault, and um, the only way to get it is by either exposing yourself to a ton of radiation or sending Fox, who's immune to radiation, to get it. Right. So which Fox is happy to do so, and he gets the Gek, hands it to you, and he's like, all right, well, I'll see you later. I'm going to go wander to Wasteland now that you've freed me from my brothers, because he was kind of trapped by his brothers for being a person who didn't want to just eat humans. Uh-huh. And you're like, all right, cool. See you later. I'm sure I won't see you again in 10 minutes. <laughs> You're then ambushed by the Enclave and captured. Oh. So you're then taken to their headquarters at Raven Rock, which is this underground facility. Uh, Colonel Autumn, like, interrogates you and whatnot, wants to get the code restart Project Purity, which you refuse to give it to him. Um, you're, you're not really sure what it is, although it's not hard to figure out. It's a, it's a three-digit code. Right. Your dad was in charge of it. It's your mom's favorite Bible verse. Okay, so, yeah. So you're about to be executed by Colonel Autumn, when you hear, sorry, Colonel uh, Autumn didn't die. No, it turns out he's alive. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you actually do see him like inject something in his arm when he gets infected with radiation. So oh, okay. It seems like something that saved him. Doesn't stop you from being able to you know go through there and take all his clothes, of course. But mm -hmm. you know, so you he's about to execute you when he gets orders from the president of the Enclave to you know not do that. That he has other orders and to also to let you go so you. You can talk with him. This person's name is President John Henry Eden. President Eden is rad. You actually <laughs> have heard his voice before, like when you first exited the vault. There's these iBots that are flying around. Uh -huh. And they are playing oh, this right. radio Yeah, they're playing this radio station, which is basically just like patriotic music. Right. And then John Henry Eden basically showing up to talk about, I'm going to rebuild America. Let me tell you about baseball <laughs> my dad used to take me to baseball games the crack of the bat the smell of the hickory it's all over the top and i absolutely love it yeah i do remember that that's great yeah, yeah. john henry eating is fantastic unfortunately colonel autumn doesn't think he's fantastic and upon um think 
thinking that uh, this entire plan to just like let you out and let you talk mm-hmm. to the president is a bad idea, decides to basically order the rest of the Enclave to kill you on sight and more or less rebel against uh, the president. Oh, all right. That can just happen? I guess so. So you fight through all this and you eventually reach um, uh, President Eden and you find out that actually he's just a uh, intelligent computer, turns oh, out. okay. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out uh, as a failsafe, the United States government designated this uh, AI to take over the government in the event that the presidential leadership died. Given the presidential leadership died when an oil rig exploded from a Mm. probably high on drugs uh, chosen one back in California, just decided to kibosh the entire thing. He's now the president. So he took over and started doing his thing. Anyways, he has this plan, a plan that's going to sound very familiar. Uh Uh-huh. He's like, I have modified a version of FEV. Yeah, We're going to okay. use Project Purity to inject this virus into the water, and it's going to kill anybody who has too much radiation in their system. That way, we can have a pure human race show up mm-hmm. and, take, and take over the capital wasteland. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Which, okay, it's, to be fair, it makes sense that the Enclave's plan kind of tracks with itself. Yeah, yeah, it's consistent. They're consistent, at least. And at least this one isn't just release it into the atmosphere. Right. And hope for the best. Right. This one's more localized. On the other hand, that means people will just not drink the water. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I feel like that plan has a shelf life of, oh, hey, someone died from that water. Don't drink it. Like, oh, no, water's still bad, turns out. Yeah, so it's like... You, you hear this plan, he's like, he gives you the vial, and he's like, uh-huh. yeah, just go ahead and go and do that. Uh, by the way, Colonel Autumn's now a bad guy, you should probably kill him too. Right, now, which at, fair. Yeah, which fair. So at this time, you can also convince him that, hey, you're a computer, and you're probably flawed, you should probably self-destruct uh, okay. if you want to do that. Yeah, sure. Uh, which if you do, then yeah, Raven Rock explodes when you leave it. And when you get outside, you're about to be on, ambushed by Enclave soldiers, but Fox shows up, and he now has like a Gatling gun, and he's like, hey, okay. I found this. Also, your friend now, you want to go hang out? (laughs) Sure. So you end up going back to the Jefferson Memorial. Uh, You fight your way up to Colonel Autumn, and you can, like, either talk him down or just murder him right there. Mm. Um, Oh, but before you do that, you meet up back with the the Brotherhood of Steel. Mm -hmm. And it turns out they've been having Dr. Lee work on something. Because they're like, all right, well, we need to make an attack on the Enclave now that they have the Gek. Because they're going to restart Project Purity. They have control of that. They basically have won. But they have a trump card. It turns out that pre-war America had built a fighting robot. Oh, yeah. And his name's Liberty Prime. <laughs> and it's great. Liberty Prime's the best. Liberty Prime is a 20-foot tall robot whose entire thing is yelling, I must stop the Chinese menace. <laughs> My directive, kill all communists. His main form of attack are either laser beams from its eyes or literally (laughs) grabbing nukes from its butt and throwing them. (laughs) He's cool. It makes you wonder why we launched ICBMs at all. Right? When we had power armor and Liberty Prime, like, what? Like, sure, nuke us, whatever. Yeah. We'll just send all the robots at you. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the conceit was that this robot was not finished before the bombs fell. Right. But Dr. Lee and her team are, like, all geniuses, and so they just got it working. Okay, yeah, sure. So you end up, like, stomping on down there and, you know, blow up a bunch of things. It's a really cool sequence. You convince Colonel Autumn to either leave or die horribly. 
But now somebody has to go into the irradiated chamber, insert the Gek, and restart the machine. And doing so, that will mean certain death. And so either you can go in, or Sarah Lyons can go in. If Lyons goes in, she like it's like, you're a coward. Fine, I'll die. Right. Now you're probably wondering, well, what, what about Fox is with I you? was probably... wondering about Fox. Or what about some of your other companions, which includes like a robot you can get, or a ghoul. Yeah. Is also immune to radiation. There's like a lot of radiation immune people in the wasteland. There are. Well, if you try to do that, they go like, well, we don't want to rob you of your fate. What this the- is your destiny. It's like, what? what? That's the oh. worst. That's the worst reason. It is. It's like, well, thanks, Fox. Wait, didn't you literally just wander into an irradiated place to get the geck for me not 30 minutes earlier? <laughs> eh. All right, asshole. Fine. So... You go in there, you activate it, um, and as you're dying, you finally see, like, the Jefferson Memorial in full, because it's always been shrouded by, like, mm-hmm. cloudy water, but now the water's cleaned up. And you find out, like, either, yeah, you either you kill everybody in the wasteland because you inserted the virus, or you didn't, and now you're the savior. Right. And the end. It's great. Everyone has clean water. War never changes. Cool. The, giving you the vial is the most pointless thing. Like, mm-hmm. what motivation would you possibly have? To do the thing that all the people you just killed wanted to do. I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, I, d- I don't know why you would take that option. It's like, well, I guess I'll just murder these people. Sure, why not? There's not really much of an enclave to repopulate after this. But right. Cool. It's like you're not doing it for the enclave. You just killed them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a bad plan. It's a bad coda to a kind of a bad story of an also, otherwise very fun and... Yeah. Why didn't the Enclave just wait for you to activate Project Purity and then attack and take it over and put in the virus? Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure at all. Also, why did the computer have the virus and not General Autumn, who they sent to take over the project and turn it on? Well, General Autumn at that point had already kind of shown his hand. Okay. They, they weren't going to give him the virus. They were not going to trust him to do that. Where is but he, he, he was going to do it, though. What's that? He, he wanted to do it, though. Yes, he did, actually. But... <laughs> <laughs> what, something in this game's not well thought out? <laughs> so what actually happened is, instead of wait for the thing to turn on, and then send General Autumn to insert the virus, they sent General Autumn first... To take over and then force you to turn it on for him and then let you go so that you could go to get the virus, to put the virus in the machine. The act of letting you go caused General Autumn to turn against the Enclave, the president. Yeah. None of that plan makes any sense. Yeah, no, none of it does. None of You're it does. right. The computer is defective and should self-destruct. It really should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the computer the computer dumb. Computer dumb. <laughs> the computer's really dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh it's a nonsensical sensical ending and fans agreed. <laughs> A lot of people were angry about the fact that your friends were not willing to go into the chamber despite being immune to radiation. Yeah. And in what is going to end up being, for a short while, a recurring trend in the video game industry, um, vicious fan feedback is going to influence a company to change the ending. Mm. 
So Fallout is going to Fallout Three is going to have five DLC packs. Uh, initially, there's only going to be three, but they all did very, very well. So they actually made uh-huh. two additional ones. Right. Uh, only two of these DLC packs are good because the vast majority oh. of them are like, "Hey, we're going to make these combat focused." Right. Yeah. Which the combat in this game is terrible. Yeah, Bethesda <laughs> games generally don't do well to rely on combat mm-hmm. focus. Yeah, and these DLCs also aren't the most relevant. Um, right. Like, one of them is like, hey, here's kind of like a simulation of the Battle of Anchorage. It's like, that's mm. cool, I guess. Yeah. Another is like, oh, man, what if these people freeing these slaves are actually bad? Oh. Yeah, it's an attempt to be morally gray about that, which doesn't... I, yeah, I, under- I understand where you're coming from. Moral ambiguity is a great storytelling trend. Uh mm. But you need to pair it with the themes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but the third DLC pack was Fallout Three: Broken Steel. Ah, uh, yes. Now, Broken Steel is different in that it takes place right after the ending of Fallout Three. Basically, what happens is that no matter what decision you make, whether it's Sarah Lyons going in, you going in, or now <laughs> you can send one of your friends in there and they won't complain about it. The basically the purifier explodes. Ah. Uh with radiation and you get knocked out and like weeks later you wake up and you're like oh boy that's weird and you're you're in the pentagon mm-hmm. turns out sarah lyons is comatose elder lyons is like man we're still cleaning up this battle against the enclave we need your help to go do this and also help distribute water across the wasteland uh depending on your decision like if you put the fev virus in there everyone's also sick and dying at this point uh-huh. um let's assume the water is clean right because that makes sense yeah, and I, I think that's also just the straight of the canonical ending, too. Right. Uh, you basically join the Brotherhood in their attempts to wipe up the Enclave, which is going very well because Liberty Prime. Right, true. It, it, stops, it stops going well when the Enclave, with the power of a satellite, rains uh, down a nuke on top of Liberty Prime and blows it up. So now, no more Liberty Prime. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so you find out where this is coming from. It turns out Adams Air Force Base, just outside of Washington, D.C., is where the on- like Enclave remnants are, and that's where they have control of the satellite. So you basically go through there, and in a fight that's not fun at all, mm. because everything is overleveled and bold spongy, mm. uh, you fight your way to the end, you get to the satellite, and you can either use it to fire on Adams Air Force Base and escape in the last minute, destroy the Enclave, or you can also just use it to arbitrarily destroy the Brotherhood of Steel for no reason. Okay, sure. Yeah. Really, um, really going in on those binary endings that they did not write themselves any reason to have, huh? Yeah, pretty much. Regardless Wait. Of what ha- oh, good. Does that mean in the original ending you could sacrifice your life to poison everyone around you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is so amazingly <laughs> awful. The pettiest way to go. If I'm dying, I'm taking all the capital wasteland with me. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, regardless of what happens, Sarah Lyons wakes up and is like, "Yeah, I'm better now, yay!" And um, and of course, if you blow up the Pentagon, she's like, "Wait, now I'm gonna kill you!" Ah, right. Her. Okay. And that's that's Broken Steel. It's basically just wrapping up the Enclave and just letting you have an actual post game. Right. So the other two DLC packs um aren't too particularly relevant either. There's Point Lookout, which is really cool, but as far as storyline reasons, doesn't really add anything too much. Uh-huh. Uh, do heavily recommend playing it, though. Uh, there's also Mothership Zeta, where you're kidnapped by aliens. <laughs> That's only relevant because there is an implication in one of the logs you can find that the aliens are the ones who started the Great War. 
as a joke. Okay, yeah. Which is like, uh, there was a lot of people who were, well, okay, I won't say a lot. There were Mm. some people who were upset about that, whereas I was like, eh, sure, whatever, who cares? (laughs) It probably is better if it is a little ambiguous who fired first, but. Right, eh. yeah. You know, making it aliens kind of fits with the kind of jokey theme, which right, is uh, yeah. Fallout Three actually is a more serious game than the other Fallout games. It's right, kind of yeah. one of its criticism, so it's kind uh-huh. of nice to have. It's just like, well, aliens are here, and yeah, they're the ones started it as a joke. Right. But that's Fallout Three. <sighs> oh yeah. Very quickly before we go on, I'm already looking at the time. One eighteen. God. Jeez. Mm, yeah. Uh, I might end up splitting this into two parts, but we, but I also might end up. Like, do you have a, like, time frame for, like, when you, like, any time pressures? Not really, no. Okay. Yeah, so my plan is I do want to get everything recorded today, and I probably will just end up splitting it up if it ends up going overly long. Okay, sure. All right. Cool, 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 cool. All right, just a second to pause, just so I know to cut this out. All right, so, yeah. So, yeah, that's Fallout 3. Once again, critically well-received. Um... And I mean, by that point, it was—it's the most successful Bethesda game. Like, mm. Oblivion, I think over its entire lifespan, sold like eight million copies. I think within the first year, Fallout Three was out, it sold nine million. Just wow. to kind of give you an idea, yeah, yeah. huge success for them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, by all metrics, Bethesda knocked it out of the park with Fallout Three. However, this was a problem for the team at Bethesda Game Studios. Mm-hmm. You see, BGS is not a particularly big team for a AAA developer. It's right. It's actually one of the things that a lot of people use to deflect criticism away from them from how buggy their games are. Uh-huh. Uh, they're like, but the team's small. You can't be expected to fix all these bugs. Right. Not like Zenimax is a massive enterprise that could expand that team if they wanted to or anything. Yeah. Hire more QA testers or something, right? Invest but- in engine development. Mm-hmm. This is, this is all obsolete criticism at this point because now Microsoft owns them anyway, so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they have staffed up from what I understand, finally. Yeah. But because of where they were at this point, they really could only focus on one game at a time. And combine that with the fact that their next project would be the fifth entry in the Elder Scrolls series, uh, to be called Skyrim. And the fact they were known to take about three to four years between games, it meant the next entry in the Fallout series might not show up for the next eight to ten years. And I'm I'm sure you can see the problem with this, Alex. Mm -hmm. Fallout 3 is kind of white hot for them, and you you want to take advantage of that. Right. So how do you, how do you go about that? Well, hmm. the parent company, Bethesda Softworks, decided to greenlight a new Fallout game using the same engine. They're like, we'll just take the same engine, we'll just get a third-party developer to make this game. And, like, have, you know, BGS kind of overlook it to make sure things go okay and right. provide support. Right. Uh, because the system, the game, the game system they're using is, uh, it's called finicky. Yeah, uh, let's, let's go with that. Yeah, yeah. Crashy mess. <laughs> Now, it would have been easy to mess this up and hire the wrong team for the job. But mm-hmm. Luckily for Bethesda, it turned out there was a perfect developer for the job. A team of ex-developers from the now-defunct Black Isle Studios who called themselves Obsidian Entertainment. Good old Obsidian. I love Obsidian. Yeah. They are one of my favorite companies out there. Uh, also, coincidentally, owned by Microsoft now. Yeah, well, you know. They're doing it. They, it seems like they're not chafing under that. So, Obsidian... Uh, whose name, by the way, was chosen to deliberately reference their old studio name because Mesidium, mm-hmm. Dark, yeah. Black yeah. Isle Studios. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was also chosen over other names such as Three Clown Studios. <laughs> <laughs> they would have made such wonderful ICP games. Yeah. 
they had already developed a solid reputation by the time of uh, the next game's development as a developer who could not only work with other companies' game engines, but could turn out a quality product in a short amount of time, and all while being like mechanically dense and like having nuanced narratives, like very well-developed games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were also known for having like tons of cut content and horrendous bugs because once again, they would turn these games around quickly. Yeah. More like, more to the point, uh, those companies that they work with would make them turn those games around quickly. Yeah. Like, it's one thing where it's like, well, they are signing those contracts, but on the other hand, it's like, well, let me give you an example. They developed the much-beloved sequel to Star Wars The Knights of Old Republic called Star Wars The Knights of the Old Republic to The Sith Lords. And it's a wonderful game. The storytelling is awesome. There's cool crafting mechanics. It has a darker take on the source material that's, like, pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Um, it was also released in 11 months. Yeah. And had essentially the entire ending cut, like, literally <laughs> cut. <laughs> and when it was released, it might as well have had a 50-50 chance to crash your computer if you tried to play it. Yeah, it was kind of unplayably terrible on release. Mm-hmm. Even the console versions were terribly unplayable. <laughs> Which is why, despite loving the first Knights of the Old Republic, I've never played two. Because at the time, all the reviews were like, no, this is garbage. Yeah, yeah, they're like, this is, oh no, this is unplayable. Nowadays is in a great state. Fans right. have restored all the cut content. Um, in fact, the Obsidian has officially rolled it back into the game. It's really great. Um, but yeah, at the time, it was absolute, absolute beast of a thing. But it was releases such as this and Neverwinter Nights 2 that built a cult following for the company, and soon they were pretty high demand as a developer. And this course leads back to Bethesda. Now, you think that being old cast-offs from Black Isle, you'd think the first thing they'd propose to Bethesda would be an, an attempt to make their old version of Fallout 3, Van Buren, finally mm-hmm. bring that to life as more than just a tech demo. But you'd be wrong. They actually proposed making a Star Trek game first. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Which, to be fair, uh, Interplay actually dabbled in Star Trek games for a while. Right, yeah. Uh, now, this was rejected. Instead, Bethesda was like, how about you make a Fallout game instead? And they were like, eh, all right, rad, sure. <laughs> and thus, Fallout New Vegas was born, and two years later would release in a typical, for the time, Obsidian fashion. Mechanically dense, solid writing and world building, and filled with every bug imaginable. Mm-hmm. While initially not well thought of, over time, New Vegas has become maybe the most beloved Fallout game out there. And boy, did it have an uphill battle. Yeah, uh, we can kind of thank Bethesda for that. Yeah, yeah, they, um, Bethesda actually did drop the ball on QA for that game. They were supposed right. to provide more QA than uh, they, well, did. Right. Which, and, given, <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say, there's, there is a, there's a saying which is never attribute to maliciousness what can be attributed to incompetence. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, I assure you, you can attribute it to both. Yes, you can. Oh, you totally can. Especially since, um, their bonuses were tied to the uh, game's overall Metacritic score, mm-hmm. Metacritic score, and I think they missed it out by two points. Yeah, uh, yep, something like that. Yeah, which is very unfortunate. And to be fair, there were, and I, to, to be fair, I mean in the sense of to the fans, to be fair, mm-hmm. there were really major bugs when this game came out. Yeah. Like, literally, terrain would pop in right in front of the player's face in, like, really awkward ways, and, like, really random stuff, too. Like, whole buildings would be visible, but, like, a rock would show up in, like, your face, and you're like, what's going on here? Like, characters would just, like, fall through the floor. Uh, basically, like, look up a video of, like, Fallout 76 bugs, 
it was basically it's basically like the same bugs that like plagued fallout new vegas when it first launched yeah which also makes it hilarious that those bugs were in fallout 76 yeah <laughs> uh. but to obsidian's credit they aggressively fixed bugs after release and ultimately left the game in a very stable state like and a state that honestly was better than fallout 3's is like it's more stable <laughs> than fallout 3 is at this point right uh and this game is so dense. Like, even though there's so much cut content and there was a ton of cut content, there are so many decisions, weird mechanics and small Easter eggs that this is a game I replay every year. And I always will find new quest lines or like weird pieces of dialogue. Stuff that, like, if you do things in the most roundabout possible way, you will end up like running into dialogue that's accounted for. Like, NPCs you're supposed to meet like five seconds after the start, but you do the entire game and come back and talk to them like, Oh, yeah, kind of weird that you ignored me, but anyways, cool to do that. <laughs> and, you're, and, like, it's really minor, but it's, like, a real attention to detail that I love about this game. Right. And it also helps that the developers themselves were very open about talking about what went right, what went wrong, what was cut, like, why they made the decisions they made. Like, uh, Josh Sh- Sawyer, the director for the game, uh, for years would talk of like answer questions talk about what happened and go over cut content and why, what was re-implemented and what wasn't. And so because of that, we just have such a knowledge about what's going on with this game. And because of that, there's like a really big fan community that's around it. And next time, we're going to talk about the one really good thing about this game. The plot of Fallout New Vegas. Unfortunately, that is going to be for next time. As this podcast has already gone on for quite a while. So for Alex, I'm going to go ahead and sign off for him and say thank you for listening. And if you enjoy podcasts like this, you should uh, definitely drop us a sub. Uh, Give us a follow on whatever podcast aggregating service you use. Drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out our other episodes. And with that, we'll see you next time as we go over the plot of Fallout New Vegas. And jump in and talk a little bit about Fallout 4 as well. Take care, everybody.